Who wants to be first? Oh, it's always way in, way in the back, isn't it? Because I was looking at the people in the front. Can't get them to raise their hands. Uh, my question is on the cost of transmission. I know that offshore wind, one of the reasons <coughs> that I've had so much trouble going further offshore isn't just because of the, um, you know, the, the piles that they're putting on, but it's because of the cost of running transmission lines two to three kilometers out in the ocean. Well, I, will, I have this to say about that. Yeah, running transmission lines is very expensive. But I'll tell you, one of the most expensive things about running transmission lines is getting them, getting rights of way over land, or uh, the aesthetic issues of running transmission lines. Permitting is a, another fiasco. And so you submerge them, you get rid of a whole bunch of problems. Now, it's expensive any way you go. Yeah, it's more expensive under the ocean. effect. we use, in our, in our numbers, we're using a million dollars a mile. But I gotta tell you, energy infrastructure, you know, billions and billions of dollars are spent uh, on, a, on a 100 megawatt plant out three miles, $3 million is insignificant. It's insignificant. The plant cost is hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, I tell you, Pacific Gas and Electric has to meet a renewable portfolio standard in California. Uh, the first one comes up in just three and a half years. Uh, there's, a, there's another big one in 2020, and they can't even meet the one in 2010. They have no idea how they're going to do it in 2020. Uh, and what they're looking at is a 500-mile submerged cable to bring wind power from British Columbia and Washington State into down into California. 500-mile submerged cable, because they can't get the right of way to build a land cable. Is that enough? Yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what kind of um, advances have you had in terms of streamlining the policy? You mentioned 20 agencies earlier that uh, it seems like sort of just got down to the FDRC and MMS yeah. later on. Have you ever heard, have you asked a, uh, someone who works for the government to do something that they've never done before? Yeah. You know what they always say? Well, we've always done it this way. Right. So there's one for a hydropower project, like building the Grand Coulee Dam or the Hoover Dam or any other dam, dam dam, there's one process, the hydropower licensing process that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has that uh, is then they give you a license to operate the plant for 50 years, which can be renewed for another 50 years. It's a real big deal, right? And, and um, so the minimum time to go through the permitting process is five years. And, but maybe for a dam like Grand Coulee, maybe that makes sense. So I told the director of FERC that, hey, we get a different technology here. We got a little modular guys that, you know what, with Grand Coulee Dam, if you build it and then you find out later, oh gee, there's an environmental effect that I didn't think about. Guess what, you put so much money building that, you're gonna operate it for the next 50 years no matter what, no matter what the environmental effects are. It doesn't matter. You've already sunk so much money in it. But with these devices, these are modular. And, I, and, and you install them, you look to see if there's an environmental problem, and then you can take them out. So I tell FERC, you need a new process. Well, <laughs> it's really hard to tell the government they need to do something in a different way. They need to think outside the box. They're not exactly very good at thinking outside the box. So 
we have to, we're putting lots of pressure on FERC many, many different ways. Public, political, there's been a new ocean energy industry trade association formed in the US. They can, I can't lobby. They can lobby. Lots of, we're putting lots of pressure on them. No, that's not hydropower. They have, they're <laughs> totally different. FERC has hydropower. Uh, wind industry, uh, I don't know the details like of how they do permitting, but okay. they, don't, they don't have to go through FERC. So this, this is a positive. Offshore wind, uh, no, offshore, offshore wind might have to. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, offshore wind now is through MMS. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm thinking uh, online here. <laughs> I'm just wondering if this is sort of a unique problem or if it's something that other industries have encountered that It's sort of out. unique. It's sort of unique because it comes from the hydropower, from the Federal Power Act of the 1920s when, when the government built all these dams. And, and it's, they've had the same process for the last, how many years? 80 years. So they have a big political bureaucratic establishment in Washington, D.C. that's set up to, to permit Hydropower facilities and and you know relicense hydropower facilities because we're not building any any new dams now they're relicensing dams. Yes. Uh, are there uh, large engineering difficulties or engineering or environmental difficulties associated with putting miles and miles of cables underwater uh, power plant offshore? I don't think so. Um, Again, that's not really my area, but I know in um, under the Long Island Sound, there's a there's a big cable now. There's lots of you know oh you know communication cables. Where the, the first cable transatlantic cable was laid how many hundred years ago? I don't I don't, I don't think so. I don't, I, I don't think it's much of an issue. I mean, they they trench them. And if they're going through sand, they trench them. If they're going over rock, they they, they rock bolt them down typically. But I don't think it's much of an engineering issue. I mean, we have, we have in California, we have uh, offshore oil rigs that have cables going out there, a couple of, couple of miles. Uh, I've never heard of any. I, I don't think that's an issue. Yeah. Wait, way, way back. So marine fouling of particles. Particles, yes. That's
uh, <laughs> three, three guys that started out of their garage and mortgaged their homes. They're, they're, they're now, they're, they needed big money to do the Eastwood project. And I sort of put in quite a bit of money. And Con Ed put in money, and they raised money from uh, an investment company called Tudor Investment. Just, they bought an equity ship. They bought $15 million into, into, into Virgin Power. So it's a combination. I've got a pair. You gave us some numbers for how much of the uh, the energy you would extract from the waves or the tide. I think you said 15% for the of the tidal power and 50% uh, of the wave power where you where you'd install those. Can you give us some estimates on what that how much that reduces the the tidal range, the tidal amplitude, and also the the wave energy near shore? Okay. Uh, Love tidal first. I think the answer is zero. And the reason is because I think it's just slowing it down. And it's just it's just slowing it down. But it's still going to go to the same range. Right? You, you know more about that than I do, Brett. What do you think? If, think we, if we slow the velocity down, say five percent, coming out of the coming out of the constriction, is that going to reduce the reduce the range? Yeah. And yes, word. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think. I think. Question back to you. Fifteen percent. Uh, efficiency. If you remove 15% of that power, I think you reduce the tidal range by about 10%. Oh, really? Okay. okay. Uh, and then for the waves? Now, wicked waves. We did my, my project oceanographer out of Virginia Tech did an analysis on that for a 100 megawatt Palamas wave farm. Uh, he estimated that the wave height reduction uh, would be 12%. So po power it goes by the square. So. beach erosion at a place where you don't want beach erosion, yeah. maybe that's good. When we get to weapons, we'll, we'll actually yeah. talk about that. Yeah, there, Chris. Um, given all the attention that's being paid currently to, um, I guess, on hydrogen and things like that, do you see any crossover between some of the technology you talked about today, especially in areas where you're well offshore and transmission may be an issue, um, to production of hydrogen or something like that? Yeah, I mean, we're the, we're the Electric Power Research Institute. We're not the hydrogen production or the portable water production, but certainly, you know, these devices can be used to make portable water or, you know, or, you know hydrogen. And, and in my long-term, this 25-year vision of these big power plexes off, you know, in the, in the Gulf of Alaska, you're not going to transmit the power. You're probably going to use it to make hydrogen or portable water. Certainly, yeah. I mean, a bunch of inputs and a bunch of outputs. and. You know, real, you know, real, real, you know, flexible, and you have hydrogen tankers come in every day and load up and deliver it to where it needs to be. Sure, but that's kind of visionary stuff. On the slide where you had the total energy that America used, um, under that you had, I think, the total, like the total amount of energy that could come from like hydro. Wait, yeah, wait, 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 w
calculate then like what were the assumptions? Okay. And the way the way we calculated weight was there's a whole bunch of data boards, you know, measurement boards with with accelerometers on them, all along the coast. And so my oceanographer crunched all that data and, and basically come up with a profile at 60 meter depth of what the kilowatts per meter were all the way down the coast. So given those kilowatts per meter and the meters, multiply those two together and, and got the total the, the total average annual power. Assuming the whole coastline. Assuming the whole coastline, yeah. And and, and using the the boys at 60 meter depth and discarding anything less he discarded North Carolina, by the way. Anything less than, I even said on there that anything less than 10 kilowatts per meter, he discarded as not, certainly not being economically efficient anywhere in the near future. That was pretty easy. But you know, people have asked me, what's the total tidal energy resource? And I say, bad question, you know. <laughs> it's really huge, actually, but most of it is a large mass of water moving very, very, very slow. So it's, you can't extract it. It's, it's a huge, it's a huge resource, but it's not only extractable in a few places. So I say the way you do it is you go look at all the places and you just add them up. And I haven't looked at all the places. We've only looked at five of the places we obviously know are real good. You, look, you, know, you can look at a map, figure it out pretty easy. You know where the, where the good places are, at least from an energy resource standpoint. Yes. Do you think any potential conflicts with uh, fisheries or uh, recreational use? Oh, absolutely. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, I've, I've uh, had the privilege of giving, oh, probably a half a dozen, well, I call them town hall meetings. <laughs> I did one in Fort Bragg, California, a couple of weeks ago. So mothers and their babies come in, and the fishermen and the kelp farmers and the crabbers all come in, and the doctors and the dentists. Yeah, they, you know... It, really care about the ocean, you know, and there's lots of conflicts out there, and that's why I say that you have to really involve the whole public, political, everybody. You know, you, before you ever begin a project, the first thing you got to figure out is, can you work out an acceptable solution where everyone works for the greater good? And like in Oregon, we've already done that. We've got NOAA through the Sea Grant program to fund was called a port liaison project, where they pay the fishermen and the crabbers and the kelp farmers for the time they spend with us crazy engineers and scientists, seeking the best solution for the whole society. So we, you know, we're already paid, and it's not fair to ask them to come away from their job and not be paid. So we, we, we pay them, we, so they get paid to meet with us and, and voice their concerns and work with us on where <coughs> A good sighting would be that meets our needs for good energy and meets their needs for, hey, you know, I got kelp here and I don't want you here, and you know, and, hey, I, I got crab pots here, you know, and that that kind of stuff. Absolutely, that's the number one. The number one key thing is in renewable energy is working with the public. I mean, you know, they want electricity, and so we need to work for the common the common good. It's really key. Well, you know, you know about protesters, right? What's going to happen with the first nuclear plant that gets started in this country? There's going to be protesters like crazy, right? They want electricity. The society wants electricity, but we got lots of constraints on it. It's, it's a tough, it's a tough business. I mean, even this thing with Duke. Like my, my feeling about this. I, mean, I know many people here are not going to agree with this, but the the point to me is that 
you know, the po political people who get elected think that the people who elect them are telling them that they want cheap electricity. They want five, six wholes you know, wholesale costs of, you know, of uh, electricity. And I think Duke, ha and Duke has a need for, new for, more, for more supply, and I think they're doing what they think the political average of the society wants. Now, you're not the average of the society here. So you, you, you may not be for that, but I think that the, the political system thinks that that's what society wants. What do you guys think about that? What do you think? <coughs> Are you talking about is there, I'm unfamiliar with Yeah, Duke, 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 just applied, Duke Energy just applied to build new, two new coal plants in, in North Carolina. Are these, uh, these are conventional plants? Yeah. <coughs> yeah, I think I might. <laughs> yes. Your uh, levelized copper. Yeah. Uh, I noticed uh, nuclear. Uh, I think I, I couldn't really see it from here. I was hoping no one would ask about that. Seventeen hundred dollars uh, per kilowatt. I, I assume that means it uh, kind of low cost existing nuclear. Yeah. You know. I, I, I got to tell you, I was hoping no one would ask about that. I really don't want to. I don't want to really address that. I, I will tell you that the founder of EPRI was a nuclear scientist. Every president we've had is nuclear, comes from a nuclear industry. Uh, half of the VPs we have are nuclear. Uh, we know that nuclear doesn't account for the, the cost of storing the waste for the next 150,000 years. So I really don't want to, I don't want to address it. I was curious. Would you say that's every tag data, though? I'm sorry? Would you say it's every tag data? It, it, it is. It, it is, Ivan. It's every tag, every tag data. But you have to always have to always recognize where you get the numbers. Like, I, I get cost quotes from wave energy device developers. I don't. I never believed a single one of them, <laughs> you know. A lot of software. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really try my best to, in Ocean and the work that we're doing. When, when my clients review, see, they think I'm an advocate, and you probably think I'm an advocate of ocean energy, right? Well, I really try to convince them that the feasibility studies we've done, we've taken the most pessimistic assumptions we can, because if I can make a compelling case with the worst assumptions possible for wave energy, and it's still a compelling case, there's a real strong message there. And most of my clients have said, yeah, you really have been conservative in all of your estimates, cost and performance. And you still made a compelling case. Okay. Well, I'm done. <laughs> There's a bit of a reception outside that we might overwhelm in a hurry, but we can continue the discussion and see if we can press him for uh, more things he doesn't want to talk about. But let's <laughs> thank you again, Roger.